loving it, Cinema Bombs. I'm Emmett. And I'm Wade. Cinema Bombs is a podcast where we watch through every single movie and popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are returning to our miniseries, Bums uh, Find a Way, covering every film in the Jurassic Park series. We will fully spoil today's film, Jurassic World Dominion, but we will not spoil any further entries in the series because there are currently none. Wade, how are you doing? Oh, Emmett. It's 8.44 a.m. I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing surprisingly well for 8.44 in the morning. It's good. I'm doing especially well today, though, because it's our 100th episode. That's right. We have somehow managed to stay on the air for 100 (laughs) episodes. Can you believe it? At least partially thanks to you, our dear listener. Really mostly thanks to Wade. Um, So big congrats. (laughs) to wade um for our 100th episode this is a big day for our one listener (laughs) they're celebrating seriously like there's a cake somewhere with 100 candles on it one for each episode yeah but they took off one for the dirty latin scoundrels episode so as well they should okay so wade jurassic world dominion what are the very brief stats Okay, Jurassic World Dominion, I cannot stress this enough, no colon in the title. It is not Jurassic World colon Dominion, it is all one phrase, Jurassic World Dominion. Unlike Fallen Kingdom, correct? Fallen Kingdom was Jurassic World dash or colon Fallen Kingdom? Yes, and unlike The Lost World colon Jurassic Park. Right. Also, I want to say that in none of the trailers or posters were there the title of this movie, which I didn't really notice until someone pointed out to me, but in all of them, it's just the original Jurassic Park logo. All of the posters are just the original Jurassic Park logo and don't have the words Jurassic World Dominion anywhere on them. Yes, neither did this movie. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I will say up front here is that I loved the font. The mm. classic locations font they used Ooh. whenever they switched in this movie yeah. felt very classic Jurassic Park to me. It was a good font. Okay, this movie was released June 10th, 2022 by Universal Pictures. It was directed by Colin Trevorrow, uh, who of course directed the original Jurassic World and The Book of Henry, wrote Fallen Kingdom but didn't direct it because he was supposed to direct Star Wars Episode Nine, and of course was fired from that and returned to direct this one. It was written by him and Emily Carmichael, who wrote Pacific Rim Uprising. That's the second Pacific Rim, I believe. She is his new writing partner, although his previous writing partner, Derek Connolly, still did get a story credit with him on this. The music is by Michael Giacchino who has done all the movies in this trilogy, as well as the Spider-Man Homecoming trilogy that we're about to watch. And that's not the only Spider-Man connection here, Emmett. Do you know what the other one is? No, you're just going to have to tell me. It's too early in the morning for me to try and think about it. Okay, the actor Campbell Scott, who plays the bad guy in this movie, Uh the Tim Cook Apple guy, is Peter Parker's dad. In the amazing Spider-Man Garfield movies we just watched. Oh, yeah, he is. He's the, the secret agent dad, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I knew he looked familiar, but I wasn't quite sure. I was like, who is this cut rate? Uh, who's the... God, okay, it's too early. <laughs> so who is this cut rate Tom Hanks? Cut the part where I didn't know who Tom <laughs> Hanks was. 
Oh, that's a pretty good call. Tom Hanks would have been pretty good in that. He would have been pretty good in that. I loved this guy's performance in this movie. Mm-hmm. I thought it was unhinged and one of certainly one of the most interesting parts about this film. Yeah, it was so wild to me that he's really like just playing Tim Cook for the head of Apple. I mean, it, that is what he's doing, right? He's just just going yeah. for it, right? Like he looks exactly like him. He's doing all of the same ticks. It's pretty wild. Which is funny considering that Biosyn is really more of a, a cipher for Monsanto, the giant uh, grain company, than it is um. for like an Apple tech company. I guess it's all of them kind of blended together. But like the real ecological threat thing in this movie comes from something much, much more realistic than anything else in any of the other movies. Yeah. This like weird corporate grain evil plot that is very close to things that happen in real life i was just sort of like what does colin know about apple or about tim Uh, cook like why is he taking this direct of a shot at the man yeah do you think this film officially counts as libel i was wondering i was like i was just wondering like what does tim cook think watching this damn let me see this runs two hours and 26 minutes oh yes 18 minutes longer than the previous longest movie, which was The Lost World. And apparently 15 minutes were cut out sort of at the 11th hour. Oh my God. Give us the Trevorrow cut. <laughs> the Trevorrow had in there. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I really do think that this movie needed to be um, two hours and 41 minutes instead of two hours and 26 minutes. I think that's the thing that would have unlocked this movie for me in a whole new way. <laughs> It had a reported budget of $185 million. Mm-hmm. That is compared to Fallen Kingdom's 170 which at first I thought was not big enough compared in the size of this movie. Uh-huh. But thinking about it, I feel like Fallen Kingdom is probably a little bigger in effects than this. Yeah. And this just has a bigger cast to pay, probably. Yes. I feel like especially getting all three of the OGs back... May have broken the bank a little on this one. And they spent, uh, we'll say this later, but $10 million was on COVID protocols and oh, stuff, wow. they said. Wow. So. so that's just $10 million out the window on stuff that you wouldn't have had to do before. Yeah. Well, then that puts it right on par with it, right? If it's 185 Yeah, it would be about the same. Like 175 so, yeah. And we're recording this right after opening weekend. But I have to say, and this is kind of surprising to me, it had a huge opening weekend made $389 million worldwide in that first weekend. Uh, and it is the biggest non-superhero movie opening weekend for any movie since the pandemic Whoa. began. Whoa. Uh, which was previously Top Gun came out a couple of weeks ago, and this beat that to be the biggest. That's pretty, that's pretty exciting. And actually, it was almost the same as Fallen Kingdom's opening weekend. Pre-pandemic. Um, pre-pandemic, wow. too. And we should also mention that it is critically panned. It got a 37 on Metacritic, which is the lowest in the series. Uh, Lower than Jurassic Park 3 at 41, the original Jurassic World at 59, and Fallen Kingdom at 51. This got a 37. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Emma, do you want to attempt some of the plot on this one? I would love to. But before I do that, I, I do just want to say, like, to the rise of Skywalker of it all. Which there is a lot of. Which there is a lot of. I mean, this movie is bazonkers. But here's the deal. In Star Wars, 
when you're looking at writing and directing the final installment in what has always claimed to be an epic story of good and evil with like things going on with like long running plots and plots within plots and stuff like that and handle fan service and all of that. It's a, it's a big job. What do you need to do with Jurassic world other than have dinosaurs eat people? There's one job (laughs) when you are assigned to direct a Jurassic world or Jurassic park movie. There's one thing that needs to happen for that movie to like continue in the lineage of the other movies. And that is Mm -hmm. a dinosaur repeatedly needs to eat people. That's it. That's the formula. You don't have to do anything else. And so it's like kind of amazing the lengths that they go to to make this movie like at the epic conclusion of an epic story like that has been running since the very since before the beginning. I mean, what? Yeah, I think one named character gets eaten by a dinosaur this entire movie, right? The bad guy? Yeah. Yeah, really. I mean, very few people get eaten by dinosaurs in this movie. Very few people even interact with dinosaurs in this movie. Yeah, why is Blue not in this movie? That was a big thought I had. Not She's like the main character of this trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, she could have come and done something cool at the end. If the Velociraptors in the first movie were smart enough to open doors, I think that Blue is fully capable of booking herself a flight and getting to Italy... And coming and saving their ass at the last minute. You know, like, wouldn't that be a twist? Yeah, I was thinking about that statistic we talked about, about how there's 12 minutes of dinosaur footage in the original movie. Oh. And I was like, it's probably pretty close in this, in this two and a half hour. Yeah. So, to try and, and like, parse this whole thing out. Because I honestly, it's astounding. Okay. The big deal is that dinosaurs from the previous movie were completely released into the wild. And now it's kind of chaos and like stuff has been going bad for a while. But that's not really what this movie is worried about. What this movie is concerned about is a plague of locusts that Biosyn, which is the company that is now cleaning up after what InGen did, but seems to still be like totally tied together. And Wade, I'm not sure if you noticed this, but I think that Lewis Dodson, who runs it, the Tim Cook guy, is the mm. same Lewis Dodson from the first movie who sends Dennis Nedry with the can of, with like right, the Barbasol right, right. can, and is like tying it all back around because he's been in the corporate intrigue game for 30 years. And now he's gonna, he's like finally pulled it off and he's got this plague of locusts that's genetically modified to only eat crops that are not biosyn, which is the whole like Monsanto connection because that's like, Monsanto hasn't done that yet, but if they figured out how to do it, you bet your ass they would. Because they do this weird thing where they've got like a monoculture grain and only like Monsanto grain doesn't get killed by the pesticides that you have to spray to kill the bugs. Um... And so like the Monsanto grain blows onto another farmer's land and that grain starts growing then it belongs to Monsanto, not to the like person whose property it was on. And, like, that stuff is, like, really happening in the American West and Midwest, where, like, the breadbasket of this country is. And, like, there is real danger of not a plague of giant locusts, per se, but of, like, some sort of famine hitting that monoculture crop. And then we'd all be screwed. Because since it's a monoculture, it one thing that ruins it, it's like the potato famine in Ireland, because they'd narrowed it down to one kind of potato when it's, like, when one of them goes bad, like, the whole thing goes belly up. But oh, to, wow. to skip the doom saying for a second, 
Well, we should say the uh, the front of Biosyn uh-huh. is that they've somehow gotten the exclusive government contract that they're the ones who handle all the dinosaurs. Yes, and they're taking them to a secret containment facility in the Italian Alps that is also somehow a rainforest. They're taking them to, you might say, some sort of dinosaur island. Yes. Some sort of Jurassic Park. Yes. Almost. Almost, one could say. And then Ellie Sattler, who we love, gets called in to look at the locusts by this this farmer woman in Texas who's like a young independent farmer. She's like, oh, Laura, like, look at this. There's giant locusts. Have you ever seen anything like this before? I knew you were the one to call. And Laura's out there. She's like, I know who I need to talk to about this. There's only one person who could tell me about this. It's Alan Grant. So then she like has, so we are on this little like side quest with Laura while she goes and finds Dr. Grant. Then she and Dr. Grant have a very awkward reunion. Uh, And they're like, they're going to go and figure it out. They've gotten an exclusive invite from their friend, kind of frenemy, Ian Mm -hmm. Malcolm, who is the in-house philosopher, which I guess is a thing, at Biosyn. So they're going there to kind of figure out what's going on. Yes, I think so. Malcolm is sort of like hinting that he knows there's nefarious stuff and they should come and help it. Now, am I crazy, Emmett? Or did uh, Sam Neill as Alan Grant have his regular New Zealand accent that he uses in Hunt for the Wilder People in this movie? You said that to me right before I went to see it. And so I was Uh looking for it. I would have to go back and watch the original to see how different it is. It is different. But I yeah. don't think he's full New Zealand either. It just yeah. seems like he doesn't care anymore. It just seems like he's doing his best at an American accent, but his best is 30 years on from what it was <laughs> when he did the original. He just doesn't care. Yeah, I went back and watched like clips from the original because I have always thought of him just as American. Like I've never thought of him as doing any accent in this movie. And immediately when he talks on this one, I was like, oh, he's doing an accent. That's really weird. Yeah. Uh, Especially because he said a lot of words we've heard him say before Mm. and they're different now. Yeah. But in the original, there are like moments where it will peek through the accent but I think he is trying to do an American accent and just sort of failing. And in this one, he just didn't even try. That's my feeling about it. Yeah, I would I would agree. So this is a thing that this movie does a lot, and it makes it very difficult to recap. It just leaves it like leaves you on a cliffhanger, or like not even a quite a cliffhanger, but like tells you something cool is about to happen and then cuts away, not for a little bit, for like 30 minutes. <laughs> cuts away so that you don't use there's not any really suspense you're just like forget about what was gonna happen yeah it's very stranger things in that way and so you cut over to claire and owen and little Maisie girl is their daughter who are living in the woods with the velociraptors in somewhere in nevada i think they after being barely dating or liking each other in the beginning of the second movie they have adopted a child and are full on like married parents together, like middle aged uh-huh. married parents with this strange adopted clone girl in the middle of the woods. It's like none of the stuff from the original movie with them in it has any bearing on this movie whatsoever. No, they have always been in love. They are raising this child together. There is no tension or conflict in their relationship at all. It's really kind of astounding. 
But unfortunately, the adoption stuff is framed a little more as, like, kidnapping, especially in the beginning. I get that they're setting up an arc with Maisie's character where she, like, doesn't like her parents and then she learns to like her parents. But it really seems like she does not want to be there and is kind of being held against her will by these weirdos who have kidnapped her. Yeah, and the first scene you see of Claire is her breaking into a, like, factory farm for dinosaurs and setting them free against the will of her teammates who are also, like, in on it with her. I mean, like, she's gone full, like, PETA commando in this one. Just kind of off the deep end. She's there with the Fallen Kingdom kids, though, so shout out to them. Shout out to them. Wish they were in this more, but they're good for the moment they have. I love the fact that the one guy is just... Straight up in the CIA now. Uh-huh. <laughs> he is head of the CIA d- dinosaur division. Also, did you see when he is flipping through the files of people they have? Uh-huh. One of them is Lauren Lapkus from the first Jurassic World. Uh, the girl in like the commando, the funny girl in oh, the command yeah. room. Yes. They have a file of her working for the CIA too now. I did see her and I was worried that she was going to show up in this movie. <laughs> is like just what this movie needs is her to come in and do her type five are you kidding me apparently it was written that jake johnson also the the funny guy in the command room was going to be with omar sai he was going to be like the other cia agent in that uh, scene. Uh-huh. and then he just couldn't do it post COVID, so they wrote him out well probably better probably the better choice <laughs> so anyway a lot of different things happen in this movie but mm-hmm. it eventually becomes clear, like I said, that the bison is doing this thing with the locusts. This happens through a strange double blind where they first they show up and Malcolm seems like a total tool. He's like promoting the company. And then he pulls Laura over and he's like, hey, like, go to this room, get this thing. You're going to find the evidence you need. Now, why Malcolm couldn't just go and get it himself? Because he's got the clearance the whole time. Why he had to get Laura Dern and Alan Grant involved at all doesn't make sense. Then there's this really cool guy. Can't remember his name, but he's the assistant. Oh, um, it's not Stanley, but it's something cool like Stanley. Oh, uh, Ramsey. Ramsey. Yes, exactly. Like a cooler version of the name Stanley. Ramsey. Um, he's the cool assistant guy to Tim Cook, and he is secretly also a double agent, and has the, is the one who like recruited Malcolm and is like trying to expose the sins of Biosyn. Oh, Henry Wu is there. He. Mm-hmm is really sad that his mistake is going to lead to starvation and death, but he is still working for the bad guys. After 30 years, he's not quite figured out how to not be working for the bad guys. Yeah, because he has created these locusts. Yes. What he is trying to do, and presumably in a better written movie, what the entire plot would be centered around, is that if Henry Wu can get Maisie's DNA... Because Maisie is a clone whose DNA was then rewritten by her clone mother so that her clone DNA didn't have the same genetic faults that killed her clone mother. Because of this rewrittenness of her DNA, if he can get her DNA, he can figure out how to basically rewrite DNA in the way that he needs to to infect the entire locust swarm that's already in existence in the world into only being like a one generation locust swarm. So he can basically kill them all off by releasing a single bug infected with the new DNA. 
there's a lot of interesting stuff in this movie. Also, well, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this movie, but about like COVID and climate change. Mm-hmm. I think this movie wants us to know very badly that it knows that both COVID and climate change are happening. I don't think it has anything else to say about it after that, but it does want us to know that it is aware. Yeah, I do think a lot of Trevorrow's work is like that, just sort of referencing things. This mazy thing is one of the biggest Rise of Skywalker analogies to me. Yes. In that you have a twist in the previous movie, uh-huh. and now they are retconning it to be a different twist. Yes. Like, they're just two completely different things, and either of them you can make a story around. Yes. But in the last one, they said that they said that her grandpa was really sad that his daughter died, so he made a clone of his daughter. And that's what Maisie is. And she's his granddaughter. In this one, they say that her mom was actually a scientist, the guy's daughter, and she of her own volition figured out how to asexually reproduce and have a child. And then after the child was born, she got sick and she somehow rerouted the kid's DNA to not ever be able to get sick in the same way. Yes. Totally crazy. A totally yes. crazy but so twist. Is the first one. It's just like, pick one, though. We don't need a retwist on this. Right. Exactly. It's a, it's a retwisting of the twist. But it also all is about this thing of like, is Maisie a human or not? Which she seems to be struggling with. Yes. But we don't really ever see how she's struggling with that, per se. I've got to say, the dialogue in this film is like some of the worst I've heard in any movie in a long time. And especially in that first scene, mommy-daughter scene between her and Bryce Dallas Howard. Oh she's God. like, I'm not even a real human, so it doesn't matter. Not even a real human. You're literally not even my real mom. Did you like when this movie started with an actual YouTube video recap of the rest of the series if you had forgotten them? Insane. Insane. Now this. We really, we're doing it. After all of this, of course things go badly and the dinosaurs get out. How do the dinosaurs get out? Because the locusts get out because Tim wants to burn the evidence. So he sets fire to the locusts in this truly gruesome and horrifying scene. And then they all manage to escape, which seems like kind of a flaw in the whole burning the evidence thing. And then it proceeds to burn down the entire forest and they're going to make all the dinosaurs escape into one safe spot, which also happens to be the spot where all the people are. Also seems like a flaw in the design. (laughs) All hell is breaking loose. And finally, we get the obligatory moment where the Giganotosaurus and the T-Rex are going to fight. And Alan Grant very wisely says... This isn't about us. <laughs> and then we get 10 minutes of those two fighting, at which point the Giganotosaurus savagely kills the T-Rex, which is truly shocking and horrible. Then out of nowhere, the Theranotosaurus comes with its giant spiked claws. And we're like, it's going to be a second boss fight between the two dinosaurs. It's still not about the people. Great. Good. That's This is the Edward Scissorhands dinosaur that they introduced in this one. It's got, like, the long spiky fingers. And they actually think that that creature was a um, was an herbivore. But it just had, like, those spikes to help defend itself. Wow. As you see in this movie. So then this one's, like, fighting it. And it's like, ah, with its Edward Scissorhands. And then, uh-oh, T-Rex not really dead. Of course, how could you think it? He's been around this whole time. All the way since 1993, baby. And it is back, 
I guess it's it's a her actually, and she's back to wreck life for the Giganotosaurus. And she throws the Giganotosaurus onto the spikes of the Theranotosaurus. Once they're done killing that one, they high five and walk away. They're like, cool. We, <laughs> there's no need for us to fight. That would be crazy. And the humans escape once again. There's basically an epilogue cutscene where Dr. Wu releases his magic locust. But that, which is really the culmination of like the ticking time bomb plot, happens with no dialogue, just kind of off in another scene. Yeah, there's like an ending montage. Of yeah, of like going where well. they are now. So where are we now, Wade? Flop or bop? What is up with this movie? It gives me no pleasure to say that this movie is a flop. It's so weird. And it seems so, like, small and not really consequential in a really weird way. Mm -hmm. I wish, philosophically, for what we've said about these movies, that I could say that the first hour and a half, Mm -hmm. where they're kind of doing, like, dinosaurs in the real world, Uh that that stuff was better than the stuff that is just Jurassic Park again. The thing where they're doing the five movies they've already done, like, the last hour. But it really isn't. I mean, I think it just, like, all fell really flat to me. I don't think that Colin Trevorrow is very good at shooting action Mm. in general. Then there was a section of this movie that started with Bryce Dallas Howard's airplane ejection, which I think is probably the best scene in the movie. Mm -hmm. There's a section where it was starting to work, and I was like, oh, maybe it's going to be one of these movies that I feel like we've covered a lot that have, like, a good half and a bad half. Mm. But then I totally did not like the ending at all. The dinosaurs are fighting. The characters are uninvolved. Yeah. Let's watch nine people run into one helicopter like a clown car yeah. and be totally safe. Yeah. Uh, so for me, it's a flop. But what about you, Emmett? Flop or bop? Well, it brings me no joy to say that this is an absolute bop. <laughs> There's no reason. I don't have any good reason for it other than like dinosaurs. <laughs> But where are the dinosaurs in this movie? I mean, good good question. No, this movie makes wild swings in every direction. Most of them bad. And still, this is a movie that was able to surprise me with how stupid and inconceivably what the hell the choices were that, was, that were being made. I really enjoyed it. I really liked when... Um, I really liked the parts where I got to see Allie and Ellie and Dr. Grant getting back together. I thought that was good. I like the new pilot character. I think she's cool. I think most of the stuff that she's doing is fun. I liked mm-hmm. the fight. I liked that fight in Malta with the dinosaurs. I thought that was cool. Like seeing Owen's friend again very briefly mm-hmm. as part of the French CIA or something. This one felt like they had finally just been like, oh, we can do whatever we want as long as there's dinosaurs in it. And then they do just like take every sequence that you like from the original movie and put it into the last hour of this movie, but not as well. And you're like, oh, well, I know what's going to happen. And you're basically waiting for the Giganotosaurus to show up because you're like, hey, we've got this new big baddie. But they do a smarter thing that they do in Fallen Kingdom and the other one where they've showed it to you already and they've like hyped it up. But in this one, they really do like wait until the last minute to to bring it out. So I think that that's a better choice. I like the Theranotosaurus with the big Edward Scissorhandsy things. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. The whole chase that Claire gets with that, I thought was one of the coolest parts. 
Yeah, I just consistently enjoyed it. I think that the Tim Cook guy really, for me, unlocks this movie in a way. Like having a villain like that, that you can just truly hate and also is funny. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm into it. I'm into it. I thought it was interesting in a movie that is all about bringing together everyone. Mm -hmm. That for me, it really was the new characters that popped. Like, mm, I thought mm-hmm. the only characters who come out of this looking well are all of the new characters. The new villain, yeah, Ramsey, the new pilot who's sort of like a Han Solo type figure. And she just has like a freaking cool outfit. She's got a cool plane. Yeah. She just like exudes badass. So that's good. Everyone in this movie is wearing like their typical outfit, like the exact clothes they wore in whatever original movie they had. Yeah. Chris Pratt is just wearing jeans and a Hanley. Like that's his iconic costume is just like a t-shirt with two little buttons up top and jeans. And that's all they have for him. Yeah. Goldblum is great in this. Goldblum is great in this. It is like a surprising turn for his character to go and work for that company. Like, who can really say? I mean, he's just, like, a, basically a paid talking head, always. Yeah. He's, like, been his thing, so who knows? I guess those people do get corrupted by corporate influence eventually. But we see his speech, and his speech is, like, you are killing the world, you specifically. Yes, yeah. you are. Yeah, that's true. And they, But they kind of like it, because, like, because corporatists like to hear that and be like, yes, hearing this makes us stronger. Right. It makes yeah. us more efficient. We can more efficiently kill the world after hearing this speech about how we're killing the world because now we're thoughtful. Yeah, that's what Tim Cook says. He's like more he's a little bit of a contrarian, but we like to keep him around. Yeah. Yeah, I love Goldblum. Anytime he was on screen saying something, I was like, we should have more of this energy. This is what we should have. Um, I also think he's somehow hotter in this movie than he's ever been, which is just astounding. But it's really great. And I like the Henry Wu. I like him having this sort of like redemptive arc, sad redemptive arc at the end. Mm -hmm. I think that's good in tying things up. And I like the new characters. And everything else didn't work for me. Like, I think every other performance in this movie is bad. And I don't really know what, like, what's going on with it. Also, there's a part in this movie where Maisie hears the whole thing about her mom. She hears Mm -hmm. Henry's plan about it. And she's like, nah, not doing it. And then later in the movie... For not really any reason that we can tell, other than she's been chased by dinosaurs for 45 minutes and it seems like the right time. She's like, yeah, I guess we'll do it. And in that first scene, she lets loose Beta, which Uh is Blue's little kid. So we're like, okay, little Velociraptor, loose an apple. This is going to be awesome. Yeah. An hour and 30 minutes later, they just cut to someone catching them. You never get to see the rampage that goes on. We don't even really hear about it. It just cuts, and then we'll pick it back up later. This movie, man, it it, it goes there. It does the thing. Wait, how much behind-the-scenes drama do you have for us on this? The big behind-the-scenes drama, the stuff that we haven't talked about yet, is just that this was like the original COVID film. Uh-huh. They started filming this in February 2020. It was shut down in March. It started filming again in July 2020. So this was like the first big Hollywood thing that was filming during the pandemic. And I think they were very much like doing a ton of protocols and like trying to write the book as they were going and had to like shut down every other week. I read that they booked down an entire hotel that just all of the the crew and cast and crew stayed at and like no one else was at the hotel. Damn. 
Yeah, it finished in November after a hundred days of shooting. It seemed to just have been like a grueling, horrible shoot. Yeah. And in fact, it was so bad that there has already been a parody film of it released. A parody film of the shoot itself? Yes, a parody film of the production of this movie, the newest Judd Apatow film. It's called The Bubble, and it is about a pandemic production of Cliff Beast 6. Which is, um, you know, about people fighting cliff beasts instead of dinosaurs. But that came out on Netflix earlier this year. Like, a parody film of the way that they made this movie. That's hilarious. Uh, And it's giving Judd Apatow something to do. So thank you for that, I guess. (laughs) Yes. Thank God he's off the streets. Yeah. The community is safe once again. Exactly. Oh, man. Well, wait. We've already talked a little bit about the cultural context of this as like giant Mm -hmm. tech companies that are actively destroying the world, even as we speak and the like big, like genetic things. But, but uh, I see here that you have written that Colin Trevorrow was wanted to write a science thriller um, that was, you know, very real and very sciencey. How, how would you say he, he fared at that? I mean, I do think this is probably the closest to the original in its, like, nefarious corporate thriller drama stuff. Mm -hmm. And indeed, I would say the locusts, which seem to be practical when you see them one-on-one, are very freaky and are, like, a pretty effective villain. Mm -hmm. It seems like this would be a much better movie if there were no dinosaurs involved. Yes. Yeah. Which is kind of the problem with this movie. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like this would be a really good, its own original science horror film. Yeah, that's just about the locusts. Yes, that feels like something that would end up on Netflix now Mm -hmm. and would be pretty good and people would talk about it. I do want to say that I, I read Evan Scott Russell's review, who I don't think loved the movie, but really liked all of this stuff and was saying it was very in line with the book. Mm hmm. I guess I just feel like if you literally have a post credit scene of the movie before of pterodactyls attacking Las Vegas. Yeah. And then you have three short films about dinosaurs attacking everyday life. Yeah. It just sets an expectation that we're going to see a movie that's about a Jurassic world. Yes. Where like dinosaurs and humans are interacting and it's a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's not what this movie is, but that is where this movie ends once again. Like, we once again, for the second time, get a montage of, like, dinosaurs are kind of awkwardly integrated into human society. Yes, but this movie has something to say about that. This movie has something to say about that that I'm pretty sure Colin Trevorrow saw on a bumper sticker one time and was like, yes, (laughs) I get it now. Coexist. The dinosaurs just needed to learn civility. The dinosaurs just needed to reach across the aisle. That's all it was. That's what it was. That's the it's it's done. Problem solved. I mean, what are we doing here? Like, this is a movie where dinosaurs live among humans, and yet this is what the movie is about, and everyone is so casual about it. Like, would Alan Grant really be at a dig site in a world where there are just dinosaurs running around everywhere? He wants to talk about real dinosaurs. He wants to talk about truth. Truth is in these rocks. Wait, I can't believe we've gone this long and not talked about Rain Delacourt. Oh my god. <laughs> but I have to ask you what you thought of Taylor Kitsch reprising his role as Gambit from X-Men Origins Wolverine. Was that really Taylor Kitsch? 
No, oh, but he <laughs> looks exactly like him. He's up in this movie saying things like, we've got the child. <laughs> yeah, like it's the first hour and a half of this movie is like Yellowstone for a minute. Yeah. He's Just like running fun. around with a shotgun, kidnapping kids, throwing bikes off of bridges. And then... Does he get eaten by a dinosaur? Is that the one person who gets eaten by a dinosaur? Is it just some other rando in the pit scene? Or is that him? Does does he even get killed by one of the things? I can't remember. I think he gets noshed by a Sukumimus in the... Um, oh, does no, no, no. He actually has a really grisly death in the like fighting ring. Exactly. Where, yeah, they like tear off his arms and then eat his head. Yeah. And Owen just freaking watches. It's like, wow. Cold. Stone cold, Owen. Um, but other than that, Owen, not doing very much in this movie. Also, just wanted to bring this up. There's a moment in this movie where I thought they were going to pull off something truly incredible. There's a moment where Dr. Grant looks at Owen and he says, I know you. And I thought we were going to find out that Owen was the little kid that Dr. Grant scares in the first movie. And he oh. doesn't do it. He says, I know you, you train raptors. And they completely mm-hmm. just like punt on a great on a great moment. I mean, if because if you're going to go for it, why not just fully go for it, you know? Mm. Uh, if everybody's got to be tied in somehow. I love the single joke Chris Pratt makes in this movie where he says, I've read your book. Well, I listened to the audiobook. That was funny. Remember in Fallen Kingdom when Chris Pratt got to make jokes? I wish there was more of that in this movie. Chris Pratt really doesn't do much, much in this movie. E- even like action-y stuff. But who does? Good point. Who does much in this movie? Yeah. There's the so many lady. characters that no one can really do much. Overstuffed. That's the hard part. That That is the stuff that was so hard for me in the last, like, 30 minutes. When there was, like, literally a crew of nine people. Yeah. And they all have to run from the dinosaur and all of them are safe. Like, yeah. in the first four movies in this series, there are always good guys who die. Yeah. You know, and the fact that there are so many good guys and no one gets hurt at all. Yeah, Arnold, Arnold and the mm-hmm. game warden and mm-hmm. a couple of other people who you I think you like in the original Jurassic Park get eaten. Nedry has a great death sequence even though he's like the kind of the corporate villain of that. He's still like yeah. a somewhat sympathetic character because you follow him on that whole like 15 minute sequence of him like getting the stuff. So by the time he gets got, you are worried about him. Yeah, even Vince Vaughn and uh, Eddie, the nice guy in the second one, the bodyguards in the third one. Vince Vaughn doesn't get got. Uh, okay, yes, he's just gone randomly from. Yeah, he's just gone at the end. But Eddie yeah. does get eaten, and like a couple of other of the gun guys who you do care about get eaten. Mm-hmm. And in the third one, exactly, yeah, you've got those three, the three bodyguard guys who all get who all get got, and Billy who. They don't even do, like, a full fake death. They do fake peril. But, like, they don't even do a full, like, oh, it looks like he fell from the... He got eaten by the pterodactyls, and how could he have possibly survived? And then he's back at the end, injured but alive. Mm -hmm. Not even any of that. Which would have felt, like, perfect for an Owen, for Owen to do. So, like, Owen to have some big sacrificial moment and then come back at the end. Mm -hmm. But not really any of that. I thought Malcolm was going to get it. Yeah, I did too. Which I think would have been cool. Yeah, I think it would have made sense. Because especially because what should have happened in that moment is it's the Giganotosaurus, not the T-Rex, right? Mm-hmm. So he's waving it, he's waving it, he's waving it, he throws it, and then the dinosaur just noshes him instead because it doesn't have the same like vision problem that the T-Rex does. And that would have been right. like 
you know, like he did the right thing for the wrong dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Like he, cause his mistake where he gets his leg broken in the first one is like from that. So it's like showing that you can learn and still, still get eaten. Yeah. But talking of these overstuffed characters, Wade, which of them is your MVP? My MVP, I already, I think I've already said the five actors that I think are good in this very big movie. But my favorite of them was Mamadou Athi playing Ramsey. Mm. I thought it was a very charming, cool new character. I liked how he was used throughout. His turn is such like a complete 180 and so wholesome when it happens that I thought for sure at first that it was not real. Yeah, it was a double-double. Yeah, yeah, because you're like, well, that's so weird. I also felt like that. But when you think about it, I think it does hold up because he very conspicuously is like, okay, you guys want to go off on your own? Just whatever you do, don't go down those elevators to this floor because you'll see something bad there. Right, right. And Jeff Goldblum would have had to get like the special security bracelet somehow. So like, it does make sense. It was just like kind of a shocking turn. I love the moment where he looks at, at Tim Cook and says, I'm not you, dad. Yeah, it felt like there maybe was an idea that something further was going on with Tim Cook in general uh-huh. that maybe didn't get fully executed. I don't totally know. Like, maybe Ramsey was a clone of him, or maybe he has some sort of health problem they're trying to fix, and that uh, he's, he's always... It just felt like there was should have been maybe a further step. Yeah. But I do like his turn against Tim Cook. I think that was really good. And, and I will say Campbell Scott's performance as Tim Cook is also really good. Yes. Emmett, who is your MVP? Cool shout-outs for our pilot friend whose name I've already forgotten. Kayla. Kayla? Is oh, yeah, Kayla Watts. Pilot. Kayla Watts yes. is her name. She is a pilot. She's awesome. Um, so shout-out to her for having a cool outfit and cool earrings. But I'm going to say, just like for acting wise, I think it's um, what's his name as as the evil corporate leader, Tim Cook. Mm-hmm. For like, there's just th- a couple, like maybe three scenes that he's in. It's they're all weird and all good and interesting, and you can tell that there's something up. And the part at the end where he's like freaking out and punching the chair, oh, yeah. is like so compelling and interesting. Like, wow, that like they're in the control room and he doesn't want to call the evacuation and. Then he freaks out and does. And I also think it's amazing that he gets eaten by Dilophosaurus, just like Dennis Nedry, who is his friend from the original. Mm -hmm. And he decides to try and ask them what their story is before he gets uh, (laughs) eaten by them. Yeah, that's great. So points for that. I can't believe they brought back the dumb Barbasol can. Oh, I can't believe it either. After 30 years of everyone online being like, the next one's going to be about the Barbasol can, they they have to do they it. They have to do it. That's the thing that felt to me like Rise of Skywalker, where they finally give Chewie his medal from the new house oh. at the very end. Uh, oh, yeah. I forgot yeah. that. Forgot that even happened. What an embarrassment to Star Wars. Okay, so wait, do you have any final thoughts on this and or what is your updated ranking of the Jurassic Park series? Okay, final thoughts. I want to call out one other scene I liked that we didn't really talk about, the Amber Mines scene. Mm Mm-hmm. I really like that because it felt like walking through a Universal Studios ride when it's like turned off. Mm. Like it had a very fun theme park feel, even the way the dinosaurs um, sort of pop out randomly in that. I really liked. I also liked the turning off the control panel scene after that with Bryce and Laura Jern together. So I think Bryce Dallas Howard is really good in this movie and 
maybe it's a little weird that she is the one character who gets all the good action moments, but she does them really well. So I liked that stuff. I do like that they reference Jeff Goldblum's kids, even if we don't get to see them, and also Ellie's kids from the third one. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I will say that I uh, saw this in IMAX, and it was actually a really good IMAX version. Oh, okay. Sometimes when they shoot it for IMAX, you can kind of tell that like they, there's just sort of a little more to the frame, but they don't actually really take that into consideration. Mm. But this one I thought was actually really good in it, so I will shout that out. Ranking, I think this is probably substantially better than Jurassic World. Uh-huh. But I think it is significantly worse than every other film in this franchise. Okay. So I would go six Jurassic World, five this Dominion, and then the same as I had before, four as three, three as Fallen Kingdom, two Jurassic Park, and one The Lost World. Okay. My main feeling about this movie is that in years to come, it will make Fallen Kingdom look even better. Oh, interesting. When you have a trilogy of movies... Uh Uh-huh. And only one of them has jokes. Uh-huh. And only one of them has well-directed, tense action scenes, like the first three movies in this series. My feeling is that that's the one that people are going to gravitate to and appreciate for yeah. years to come. Jurassic World, not a fan. For real. I don't really have much more to say other than I really like Laura Dern. I think she's good in this. I do like the stuff between her and Dr. Grant. I think it's cute. I think it's sweet that they finally end up together. Yeah, I like that. Like that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. The The whole thing of what you say about like it being the world of dinosaurs and really that not happening is really disappointing. I think it is Jurassic Park number one, Lost World number two, Jurassic Park mm-hmm. three number three, Jurassic World Dominion, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, Whoa. Jurassic World. You like this more than Fallen Kingdom? I like this more than Fallen Kingdom. That could just be recency bias, but for right now, it'll, it'll have to do. Damn. All right, now, if we've got time, I've got Bums the Word coming at you. So this is the six films in a franchise, ranked from best to worst, but we're going to do it backwards. We're going to do it worst to best. Okay, who made this? This is off of IMDb. Okay. So number one on this is a 1982 comedy crime mystery. All of these films are six films in the franchise. It's a comedy mystery starring Peter Sellers, in a famous role of his. Oh, okay. This is one of the Pink Panthers. Yes. And if you were going to be following the Pink Panther, you would be on... The trail of the Pink Panther? That is correct. Okay. I know we shouldn't be diverting, but I will quickly. Do you know what this movie is? No. It's a movie where they had shot half of it before his death. Uh Uh-huh. And then they refigured the movie into being someone trying to, like, chase him. Whoa. They just like used his footage as like he's off doing something and they changed the movie to be about like someone else sort of following him to try and like salvage the movie after his death. It's really weird. That is crazy. Number 13. It's a Mm -hmm. horror movie that we have covered on this podcast, although only briefly. Okay. It is a film about a very famous villain A very famous villain who wears a dumb little sweater and hat. Okay, so it's a Nightmare on Elm Street? It is. Part six? Part six. Uh, Yeah, you're close. Freddy, Freddy's Revenge? Uh, No, (laughs) this is a bonkers title. 
That's from 1991. Is he taking Manhattan? No, he's not taking Manhattan. Um, in fact, he he is deceased. Oh. This is a film with a very misleading title because there will be f- further films in the series. Oh, is this the final chapter? Uh, this is Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. So okay. that's pretty close. Okay. Ne- next up, we've got another horror film that we covered on the same episode. Uh, the other villain that we covered on that episode. This is Friday the 13th. Uh, yes. And it is the opposite, basically the opposite title of the one that we just did. So it's Freddy's Dead. Jason's back. Jason's alive. Jason lives. Jason lives. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Next up, we've got Total Lane Switch, an adventure comedy family film from 1999. Um, It's about a beloved character who we've known throughout the whole series finds out that he is an alien from outer space and his alien family is contacting him and wants him to return to outer space. It's a very emotional movie um, in the series and kind of an underrated classic, I think. Wait, that's what this whole series is about? No, that's not what this whole series is about. That's what this one movie in the whole series is about. This whole series is more about like a, a gang of musical friends who like go around and do different things all over the world. Sometimes they take Manhattan. Sometimes they have a great taper. Oh, okay, okay, okay. This is a Muppets movie. Uh, Muppets go to Muppets in space. Muppets go to space. Uh, very close. It's not the Muppets in space. It's the Muppets from space. <laughs> Um, because it's Gonzo's family, the Muppets from space. Okay. Uh, okay. Next up, we have a movie from a very long-running action franchise. Okay. Uh, this is the sixth film in that series. It came out in 1969. This is the first time that George Lazenby steps into the role. Right. And he only does this one. I, there are a couple. So, let, is it from Russia with Love? It's not from Russia with Love. Is it on Her Majesty's Secret Service? It is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Cool. Good work. Next one is a movie that we have covered on this podcast fully. It's wow. an action movie from 2013. Okay. It is either the sixth movie in a series or it is the second movie in a trilogy of standalone movies. Okay. This is an X Men movie? Yes. So this would be The Wolverine? That is correct. Wow. Next film on this list is from 2006. It's a a sport action drama starring a very famous actor um, who is mostly famous for this role, but also for another military role. It's the sixth movie in a sports series? In a sports series, in a famous sports action series. Sports action? Yes, 30 years after the ring of the first bell. Okay. Yeah, this is a sports movie, you're right. Uh, This is Rocky Balboa? That is correct. Next movie from 2013. It's an action crime thriller. This movie, I think it's safe to say, it's all about family. Okay. Oh, I just did this the other day because I was making a joke that Pride and Prejudice um, had the same title as Fast and Furious. So let me think. Six is just called... Fast and Furious 6? It is. Okay. Next up is kind of the sixth movie in a series. It's also kind of the third movie in a series. The lead character of this and his company are forced to engage in a war against an array of combatants. And it kind of comes out of nowhere. This is the third movie in a series based on a single children's book. Oh, okay. I was thinking this was Revenge of the Sith, but now I'm thinking it's... The Hobbit, 
the Battle of the Five Armies? That's correct. The Battle of the Five Armies, which is a single chapter in the book The Hobbit, was made into a movie that was no less than two hours and 24 minutes long. How do they do it? And I'm sure it had an extended cut. I'm sure, I'm sure it did. I need to know more about Tyrael. I need to know. Okay, another movie coming in at two hours and 33 minutes. Just the longest. That's the sixth, sixth movie in a long-running franchise, also based on some famous children's books. This, in this one, it's like the dark and twisty one hmm. of the oh, series. Is this Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince? It is indeed Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And that brings us to our final film. It's from 2005. It is two hours and 20 minutes long. It is like the other one, both the sixth and the third movie in a series, depending on how you want to look at it, but kind of differently. Right. This one is Revenge of the Sith. This is, in fact, Revenge of the Sith. I was thinking recently that maybe Half-Blood Prince kind of holds up in particular on a rewatch, but I only ever saw it the one time, so I don't know. It might. I always complain about the the fact that they burn down the burrow, which is just completely invented, but it also injects mm-hmm. a much needed sense of action and urgency into a film, which otherwise is just Harry looking sad at things. Yeah, that's the best scene in the movie. It is the best scene in the movie and perhaps the best scene in any of the movies. <laughs> What's dumb is that the borough is just back in the next movie and they never right. explain it when they have the wedding. Right. Like, there needs to be some sort of line of, like, we rebuilt it identically. <laughs> yeah, so, like, like I love magic, even. Yeah, exactly. I just recently rewatched most of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Love okay. it. Love it. What a great mm. movie. What a great story that one in particular is, like, with the whole, like, the hidden diary and the... The oh, yeah. Basilisk and everything. And get this, that's the longest movie in the Harry Potter movie series. Is it really? That's wild. Which I think is the second shortest book in the whole series after the first. <laughs> Dude, Chris Columbus, I think he's pretty good at that kids' action sort of stuff. He, he really is. What's going on with it's it. really and it really does it feels magical even now watching it. Like the CGI, not a problem. It's it's all just like the, it's very practical, very, very cool. And the music is like doing so much for it too. Mm, okay. So let's let's talk briefly about this. Uh-huh. I actually think Jakino's score is pretty good in this. Ooh. There were like a lot of moments where I was like, oh, I'm noticing the score. I think it's pretty good. Uh-huh. But like occasionally you need to play the original themes. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like they kept teasing it in this one, but they just never drop it all the way. And just like occasionally you have to do it, I think. Yes, I would agree. I feel the same way about Obi-Wan. And I'm kind of, with that I'm almost like, couldn't they literally not afford it? They might not. Like, can they literally not afford to pay John Williams to use the music? Because like you do need to use the music every now and then. Yeah, for real. Well, Wade, you have won the game. Incredible. Dear listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us for 100 episodes. Super exciting. Mm-hmm. And join us again in six weeks when we discuss Jordan Peele's Nope. Also, wait, how many times did people say Nope in this movie? People said Nope a lot in this movie. They knew. Yeah, They're like, this is the summer of Nope. I will also say I saw a new trailer for Nope in front of it. I'm not sure if you did too. I kind of wish I had it because it did. Did it? I don't think it spoiled anything major, but I do think it gave away like what the movie is about, okay. which nothing so far had. Yeah. So I kind of wish that I hadn't seen that. Okay. But well, I'll hold I on. I am still very excited. That. And uh, next week, join us when we talk about Captain America Civil War, which is the next film in our Spider-Man series. Yeah. 
Yeah. Starting the Tom Holland run. Starting the Tom Holland run. You know the deal. Stay frosted. (laughs) Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Wade Lawrence Holloman and me, Emmett Temple. Wade also edits and mixes the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.